Hello and welcome to Move Conversations. This is your host Venkat. This is the second part of the Move Conversations interview with the best-selling author, speaker, and policy strategy expert, Miss Michelle Booker. In part one, we discussed her best-selling book, The Grey Rhino. In part two, we discussed with her her new book, just released a couple of months back in 2021. You are what you risk: the new art and science of navigating an uncertain world. Let me begin with an interesting trivia that I read in your book. People were more likely to take more risks shortly after eating spicy food. Please tell us about this Chinese research that has found a strong correlation between liking spicy food and uh, risk seeking. Yeah, it's it was it was amazing. It was one of those those really you know wow moments in the research that that I discovered and. And you know, of course, there there are lots of stereotypes that people have about people who like spicy food. Oh, they must be big risk takers, and and you can think there actually might be a little bit of something. I mean, generally, I'm not a fan of stereotypes, but um, but you know, if if you um, it doesn't matter whether you like spicy food or not. It's just like if you if you had it, and I think it's a very interesting sort of geographical social cultural context because i mean like of course you know india has wonderful spicy food or like nice. mexico or like thailand right. you know places where you know are very hot and then you know you read about them and you read way back in the days before there was refrigeration that you know the spices help to you know kill whatever might grow in there with the, Bacteria, with the, without right? refrigeration and things Bacteria, and so but it's interesting because the you know the spices on on the one level make it somewhat safer but they also kind of mask whatever kind of questionable thing yep, so they yep. make it safer and they make it riskier at the same time and so i don't know if it's that we've we've just sort of like internalized the fact that there there are all these risk decisions that went into the food being spicy in the first place or or not but i mean you know i went to to uh, to uh, to school in texas to to junior high high school and college in texas and and i had a friend who moved to california right afterwards and of course in texas we love spicy food and in california they have this sort of cow mex version of mexican food that's not nearly as spicy and so she was out to dinner with some friends and they had this this salsa they're like oh this is so hot oh terrible she's like that's not hot they're like oh but it's so hot she's like no it's not hot like, no it's so hot so she picks up a bowl she drinks the whole thing, puts it down, and says, "It's not hot." <laughs> I, can, I can understand that, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It goes due to like how used how used to things you are, right, right, because right. you know, you know, people. I live in the Midwest now in Chicago, where people don't eat spicy food, and so something that I would say is not hot, they would say, "Oh, it's crazy hot." <laughs> so it actually has to do with you know your your relationship to to things around you, your experiences, your your practice, what you're used to. So, you know, spicy on a certain level isn't even just objective because it's completely different to different people Correct. depending on their experience. Correct. You know, you talk about the Sichuan and Chongqing uh, people, right? And I think there are parallels to regions in India where people eat a lot of spicy food and uh, and quite a few of them are actually, I think, uh, you know, well-known uh, traders, risk takers, uh, you know, entrepreneurs of, of the kind that like other people will say like, oh, that's very risky business. But like these people, these people are very well-known, you know, historically to have... Uh, 
traded in geographies which people think is risky traded in products and you know and developed sophisticated instruments and transactions and so on and so forth so yeah i'm i'm, I'm sure that you know there there should be more research to find out uh, you know the, what but the it really does say you know it depends on your perspective i feel so bad for for waiters in in you know a thai restaurant you know in in the midwest who you know they say okay how how spicy would you like something and they have no idea what the person in front of them considers to be spicy, spicy yeah, exactly. or not so you know how much they're risking like having to having to send the dish back to the kitchen because they have misjudged you know what they think that the person thinks is yeah, is yeah, spicy yeah, really? Yeah, when our family goes to you know non Thai or non Indian restaurants, we just say like like yeah 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 spicy. Whatever is your highest level, because you know that we know our tolerance level is manageable. Still. And it's still probably mild for people who are used to spices. <laughs> so so you know that that brings us to risk personalities also, right? When we talk about risk personalities, the classic question you know how much is nature, how much is nurture comes up. So what's the role of family, society? culture and work environment you know and what did you find in in your research well it's it's interesting again it's 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 like a room full of funhouse mirrors that <laughs> you know when when you observe things they they change and you know and it's why i talk about a risk fingerprint which pulls together your innate personality your your experiences your upbringing your peers your environment and even you know what you what you had for lunch yeah. <laughs> and how you how you respond to it um, <laughs> because you know there's a certain amount of of our innate personality that you know we just can't change and there there's a very interesting tool i talk about uh called the risk type compass developed in the uk right. uh which which basically has eight personality types and then how strong you are how strongly you're connected to each one of those types how flexible you are and that basically uses big five uh personality type of uh, you know, theory right. to to look at how anxious or calm you are when you're dealing with the risk and how methodical or impulsive mm -hmm. you are and how all of those those you know come together mm. but so then there are the the experiences that you've gone through and it was interesting i interviewed some people who'd gone through terrible experiences and became much more uncomfortable much more comfortable with uncertainty with risk taking right. and doing things that some of us would think oh that's a huge risk but they actually you know, set everything up around it so that it was the risk was minimized. So I mean, right. like, you know, Mark Pollock, the, the uh, who's the first blind man to race race across the uh, the South Pole, right. who later uh, became uh, uh, paralyzed, mm -hmm. and who, uh, you know, who still does amazing things. And he's out on this race to find a cure for paralysis in his lifetime. Wow not risky, not difficult at all. And so, you know, there's him and other entrepreneurs who've gone through, you know, very difficult things um, who use that, who learn if they like, they de they've developed a risk-taking muscle mm. and they get better at doing things. But then there was um, uh, someone I talked to who he had, in his forties recently become the CEO of a, a Central American family conglomerate where the older generations had gone through the, the sort of civil wars where, mm. you know, much of their, many, much of their assets were seized and they became very, very conservative. Mm. Similarly, I talked to, you know, adult children of Holocaust survivors mm. whose, you know, you know, family became very, very conservative. They, they, they wanted to minimize risk as much as possible. And so all of these people went through really difficult times mm -hmm. and some of them embraced risk afterwards and other ones didn't. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's, there is an interaction between the experience and the innate personality. And then also 
you know, the habits that you take, the, mm-hmm. the, the habits that you develop, the, the people around you, uh, even in, when I went into some of the, the neurobiological uh, parts of this, you know, like the, the spicy food is, you know, the temperature in right. the room, right. the music that you're listening to, sort of, True. you know, the physical environment that you create. So all of these come together to create your, your risk fingerprint, which is who you are. And then the decisions that you make, the choices that you take, the risks that you make really tell the world who you are, much as a, a finger fingerprint on a, on a glass at a crime scene. Right. So when we talk about, uh, you know, the risk fingerprint, you're talking about saying that like, it's not, you know, it's, it's definitely the experiences matter, uh, they influence, but in addition, it's like, you know, cultures, demographics, nations. So, so overall context seems to be important, right? Absolutely. You know, it really, it really struck me when I was writing the book, how much the, you know, the cultural, the national, the, the policy element affected people. It's, you know, it's like, a, like I was talking in the, in the first section of this interview about how, you know, in China, they're, they're much more uh, long-term thinking about risks, much more aware, much more willing to talk about certain kinds of risks uh, publicly at the highest level than America. Um, I, was, um, I was giving a talk at a high school in mm-hmm. Milwaukee mm-hmm. And one of the people in the audience, this was when they were debating uh, where healthcare was going to go in the States, right. if they were going to sort of take away the Obamacare uh, right. provisions. And she said that she saw a huge increase in patients coming in with sort of stress and mental health issues because they were freaked out about the possibility of losing their health care. So that was a very clear example of this, you know, relationship between the, the bigger level and the personal level. And of course, during the pandemic, you know, every country has has dealt with it in different ways. You know, some of them recognized it more quickly than others. Some of them acted faster to put in public health measures. There's a big ver- variety in, you know, how stringent and extensive those were, how long they lasted, mm. big variety in how governments communicated the risk and how people took it. And in, you know, in the United States, of course, it's almost like we have two different countries. Right. And so it's, it is very hard to separate the personal from that, the bigger policy level, which of course is you know, where I come from. I, I was a little bit, I felt like it was very risky writing a book that went yeah. into the personal side of risk because I'm like, I'm not a self-help author. I'm, right. you know, I'm much more comfortable with 30,000 foot policy stuff and business strategy. And, and it was really making that connection between the two that, that made me realize how important that conversation was to have. Right. So the, the one aspect of policy that, uh, you know, when you gave these examples of uh, withdrawal of Obamacare or the fear of it and so on and, and other policies uh, that, that may affect uh, people. Uh, so, so that sort of triggers my question. Uh, does having safety nets, you know, maybe in the business community or safety nets generally provided by government, does it increase or decrease risk taking? We discussed the, you know, the healthcare and Obamacare kind of situations, but um, you know, I'm I'm taking the same aspect, but like wanting to explore the other side of it, right? Like, do people? What did what did your research show? Whether people take more risk, less risk? What is what is happening? What what does research show? I think it uh, it depends on the kind okay. of risk. I mean, on the one hand, we have the, the moral hazard 
you right. know, the businesses going and making terrible risks, assuming that they're they're going to be bailed out by the government and the taxpayers are going to do it. Like, that's obviously something we want less of. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then there are the good risks, like, you know, investing in education. I, I mean, you know, as a as a teenager finishing high school, going to college is like the biggest risk decision of your entire life. Your, your brain's not entirely developed to make that decision properly. And it's a completely different risk depending on your family's uh, socioeconomic circumstances. You know, right, right. whether you think you're going to get a job that's right. good enough to pay back for this investment. And, and it's different for everyone. You've seen this research saying that, you know, people who have names or hobbies that seem quote unquote ethnic on, right. on the resumes yeah, yeah. are less likely to get interviews and less likely to get jobs. And so, so all the factors that go into that risk decision are completely different for every person and, you know, how much the government pays for it and how much the government cracks down. If, mm -hmm. for example, there's a, scam university mm -hmm. you know right. we, we had a big issue a, a few years back with yes, uh, yes. for-profit colleges including some um Terrible. founded by people with very prominent um common <laughs> commonly known <laughs> names which i yeah, will mention yeah let's not take names i'm familiar yeah but it's you know it's it's so it's it's all these factors coming together and so you know risk itself sometimes is is very hard to define because it's there's such a huge subjective part that right. depends on the context. The same risk is not the same possibility of loss or gain to two different people. So right. it's, you know, it's it's like a room full of funhouse mirrors. The, the the more you look and look at the factors, things things change. So and, and that's very, very hard for a lot of people to to keep in their head. You know, people don't like complexity. They don't like uncertainty. They don't like ambiguity. But but I think we need to be thinking about risk that way. Yeah. Right. So let's move on to talk about the gender hormones and risk, because I saw something very interesting there. The new site of findings by, uh, you know, Singapore Management University researchers, and they did this research uh, jointly with others, that male traders with higher testosterone levels end up with worse returns overall than the lower testosterone managers. So, you know, the popular narrators in films and television, television and you know even the business media is that they, they glorify the high testosterone executives so that's not correct is that is that the case i think it's time to to really take a new look at that and and the whole question of of gender and risk which is as you right. know i go into quite a bit in the book there's there are a lot of things that people think they know that you know the research doesn't completely bear out this oh you know women are more risk averse thing hmm. uh it you know doesn't uh, doesn't hold up. Right. Uh, Julie Nelson at University of Boston did a very, very interesting study yeah. uh, applying new statistical techniques to past studies that um, that used, you know, averages instead of ranges of reactions. And she said there's a there's a 95 percent uh, overlap between. Yeah, yeah it's inter very interesting statistics. How much risk. Yeah. But there are nuances in it in that, you know, women are, uh, there's evidence that women are more likely to take social risks, you know, mm -hmm. saying the thing that nobody wants to hear. And why is it? Because a lot of women, particularly in business, um, start out, they're the only woman in the room. Right. Full of full of men. And, you know, of course, we know about, you know, groupthink from reading right. Gray Reiner that when you have a bunch of people who look alike, they kind of in a really uh, buckle down, right. you know, double down on each other's opinions. And so right. saying anything as someone who looks different in the room 
is a much greater social risk than for anyone else in the room. So women have a lot more practice at taking social risks. And so it's like a muscle, you know, when you do it, you, you get better at it. Um, But there are, there are some variations uh, that, that depend on education and experience. And some of the research also shows that in situations where a woman and a man, um, have no experience or little mm-hmm. experience, mm-hmm. you know, in that case, the men are just going to kind of go through and and do what from the outside looks like taking more risk. Now right. that may be because they don't perceive it as, as much of a risk. Mm-hmm. Um, it may be because they just don't think about it at all. I mean, similar, right. you know, for children, everything is hugely risky because it's new, but it's also not risky because they don't know the dangers. Right. So there are some differences between men and women. There are some differences, certainly in in the hormones. Right. Um, and there's there's there. I think there's a lot we really don't know yet about uh, about hormones and genetics. I think people are really digging through all of that. Um, but that uh, that women also are likely to have a, a somewhat different process. Right. You know, they're they're going to want the information. They're going to want to ask the experts. Um, it's actually a, a much wiser, much savvier way mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. dealing with risk. Right. And But people tend to sort of pejoratively talk about women as, oh, risk averse, because right. they're asking the questions that needed to be asked. And, and I'm actually trying to get rid of the word risk averse right. <laughs> entirely, because <laughs> it's usually not used the way people think it, it is, is yeah. meant. And um, it's I think we need to be talking about how you make the decisions uh, you know, what's the process? I'm mm-hmm. certainly look at the neurobiology of it, look at the training, look at the education, look at the types of risks involved. I mean, there's other research that shows men are more likely to um, to take uh, risks like, you know, speeding mm-hmm. or, you know, with, with alcohol or, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are some differences, but, but I think in a business context, um, we need to be looking a lot more at the kind of risk savvy that yeah. women bring to right. decisions. Right. So, you know, when you're elaborating on that, you touched upon seeking other people's opinion. You, you touched upon the um, sort of la- lack of diversity in, in, in rooms and, you know, in teams and so on. So in organizations, so should we have uh, teams with people of different risk profiles? Or should we have similar? So I'm not, I'm not, you know, moving into the gender aspect alone, right? Mm-hmm. Because you said that like, if there are a lot of similarity in certain decisions they take, then it could be, we should move to discussing the risk profile of the person rather than gender or ethnicity of the person. So in that context, should we have more people with similar risk profile or different risk profiles? Yeah, I think having, you know, different risk types, different risk fingerprints among people in the room, is such a powerful risk mitigation tool, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. also helps you to better take opportunities because, Mm. you know, you remember, you know, flip, you know, the risk has a flip side. There's the downside and the upside. And, you know, if you're, if you're not taking the bad risk, you might not also be taking some of the good risks. And when we talk about board diversity and and that, it tends to look at, uh, at gender or, you know, Mm -hmm. ethnicity. Um, People, I think, are paying some attention to the need for different professional backgrounds. You know, if you have a room right. full of engineers, you're going to get one out, output. If it's True. a room full of lawyers, you're going to get something else. Um, but I don't think there's been enough attention yet to the risk component of that. I mean, you know, actually, engineers are going to have a very different risk type from contract lawyers or from 
litigators. True, you know, those true, are also true. you know very different. And marketing professionals. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, we, it, it's we, funny we, actually. We will talk, one... talk and solve everything in the world. <laughs> you know, there's there's one lawyer I talked to who he had wore two hats. He was a uh, um, chief counsel for a company, but he was also the head of marketing distribution. Two complete completely different risk brains, and he you know he could shift between them. And I think he, he really learned a lot of, of empathy towards different positions. And I think that's, that's really important when you've got people coming from, from different perspectives about mm-hmm. risk, understanding why somebody else is coming at their, their opinion, the way right. they are, but it's, you know, looking specifically at different uh, risk types in a room mm-hmm. and, and risk fingerprints you can look at the problem from different perspectives. You might be, you know, somebody who inherently thinks about risk as a negative thing Mm -hmm. might not be thinking about missing an opportunity as an equal risk. And somebody who is gung-ho about any possible chance to make a ton of money might not be looking enough at the possibilities for what might go wrong. Exactly. And with any sort of diversity of thought, it takes an investment of time and, you know, some discomfort. I mean, it's, it's often uncomfortable to talk about things with someone who doesn't come from the same point of view that you True. do. True. But when you can look at it clearly as this is why this person thinks about it differently, it kind of depersonalizes it. It, True. it diffuses the situation and it allows you to have the conversation in a much more rational way. It's like if you're going on a business trip with someone right. and you have to share a cab to the airport and you can't agree about how much time to leave to get to the airport. <laughs> you know, if you could just say, hey, this is how, I mean, like for me, like I have, you know, global entry and TSA pre, the stuff that gets you through the lines really quickly. Yeah. And that's really great. But there have been a couple of times where I just, barely made it on. There was one where I only made it on because the flight was delayed by 10 minutes. And I, after a couple of those experiences and they were traffic related, I'm like, I'm going to leave the extra time. I'm going to have an extra, extra drink in the, in the lounge ahead of time. And like, I leave more time than probably a lot of people right. would. And it's because of those experiences. And True. so if I'm talking to someone who's got to you know, ride in the cab with me, I'm going to say, Hey, this is why, this is I why. And I want to know you know, why you're coming from where you're coming from. And once you can put it in those terms, those personal stories, you're like, oh yeah, okay, I can I can meet you in the middle. It makes it much easier to do when you when you really realize that risk fingerprint element of why people are making a decision that they are. True. Right. So you also cite a very interesting research, uh, and I quote, uh, like people whose languages did not require them to add a future time reference were much more future-oriented than those whose languages distinguish between present and future tense. And she also even gave examples of languages which has got like um, more than two, three examples of future, you know, of uh, specificity of uh, future tense. I mean, in some of the Indian languages, you can go up to two or three, but then like, this is like some numbers that you quoted were like much more. So back to the main uh, point. Uh, so, uh, future time references, if they didn't have it in their language, they were much more future oriented. So since Mandarin does not have that uh, tense, did, did they find those speakers more focused uh, on future than other it's language speakers? You know, in, in, in the Grey Rhino, I wrote a lot about, um, you know, long-term versus short-term thinking. And, you know, the, the countries where you've got more 300-year-old companies 
uh, are in Asia. You get a lot more of that in Asia than uh, than in the West. Hmm. And uh, the other thing I found to be very interesting, and this wasn't so much language oriented, but that um, that when it came to a, a technological change in AI, hmm. people in Asia thought that it was coming much faster right. than Westerners did. Right. You know, there was a, a study of, they asked people, when is high level ma machine intelligence going to happen? Mm. Uh, which is, you know, when machines can do pretty much everything better than humans. Right. And, you know, the Asians were looking at, you know, 30 something years out and the, the Westerners were like, ah, oh, 70 something years, <laughs> you know, so it's actually a completely different per perception of the time the as well. And, you know, I think one of the, one of the reasons that the gray rhino caught on uh, in a big way first in Asia uh, was because people are able to think longer term because they've got different risk perceptions, mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think that really had to do with it. You know, when I went to China, people would say, you know, you helped us, you gave us a, a way to talk about the thing that was on our mind. Right. And sure. it's, you know, and I think, you know, old, old civilizations like that, I mean, the U.S. is still just like, you know, a baby in the grand scheme of things. And I think that, so I think it's the, it's the language, it's the experiences, it's, it's a bunch of things that, that come together, but, but how we look at time is, is really an important component of risk. Right. Cause you look at how people often discount things that are too far in the future and they overemphasize short-term things. And, and that's a, it's a real issue, particularly in the West where I think we really suffer from it. Right. So in Asia and more uh, specifically East Asia, it um, resonates with, with people and uh, you could give them a metaphor and uh, they could talk about it, which, which they anyway, like, like are, as you said, by their nature, by their nurture, they, you know, they're more future focused probably. Right. So talking of entrepreneurs, um, you know, you say that contrary to popular belief, most of them are not high risk takers, but only sort of moderate risk takers. So, you know, could you elaborate on that? Absolutely. It's and this again is a case of a, a big difference between the stereotype, the the, the outer image, oh. and the difference between um, you know subjective risk and objective risk, like what the risk really is and what you perceive it mm -hmm. as. Because you know you can have two people doing the same thing. You know, you know, doing a, a you know, bungee jump and someone who's done it a thousand times and has like read all the manuals, you know, it's a very different, they perceive it differently. And it actually is less of a risk than someone who's doing it for the first time. And it's just like a lark and they were drunk and someone, you know, challenge, you know, dared them to do it for, for their birthday. And mm -hmm. so I think entrepreneurs are kind of like that. Um, uh, entrepreneurs tend to look in much greater detail at all the things that need to happen. Mm -hmm. um, there are some studies that show that some of them believe that there's a greater likelihood of success mm -hmm. than, than reality actually mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, in that sense, they may be perceiving a risk as you know, smaller than it is in real life, but that's offset by the fact that they're, you know, they're doing their, their homework. Right. And they also may be weighing risks differently. When I was researching the book, I asked a lot of people, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken? And then after the book came out, a bunch of reporters kept throwing that back at me, you know, smarty pants. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was, you know, talking about a, a risk in, you know, involving a decision between, you know, career and health. And as I described the logic to them, um, I realized that the bigger risk, even though it seemed risky to like leave a, 
secure finance job and go off and, and write a book about a country that, you know, two countries that, that didn't get a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. You know, that seemed really risky to the outside. But in my logic, I realized that that was the smaller of the two risks. And the other mm-hmm. was, you know, staying in a job where I felt I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing, where I wasn't fulfilling my potential. And I felt like I would just, you know, I, I'm sort of lucky in that uh, my health gives me a warning signal when I'm when I'm not happy, um, which makes it very hard to do things that I don't enjoy and, and I get bored easily. So that's a real challenge to manage. But but I realized that what I needed to be asking as well as what's the biggest risk you've ever taken is what's the biggest risk you've ever not taken. Right. And I spoke to some entrepreneurs in the book who went through exactly that process. Uh, you know, Nicole Vasquez, who's the, one of the co-founders of, of DeskPass, mm. you know, was in a job where she just like worked her butt off and she was, you know, the youngest person to be promoted. And, and then her boss was like, look, and it did it in a, in a nice way, was saying, hey, you're working these crazy hours, but, you know, you've already been promoted. The, the odds of you getting promoted again are pretty low, kind of, you know, just like be better to yourself. Mm. And she thought about it and she's like, is this where I want to be long term? And mm. so she went off and she became an entrepreneur and it was absolutely the right decision. Mm. And so even though to, to people on the outside, what she did seemed very risky, mm. she did a very, very sensible assessment of what was best for her and what the biggest risks were and weren't. And you're seeing that more and more today. I mean, I keep seeing these, these stories of the great resignation, you know, during the pandemic, people are quitting their jobs because their jobs aren't giving them what they want anymore. And in some cases, you know, people are saying you have to come back to the office is kind of the final straw. Mm -hmm. And so that that calculation between uh, the bigger risk being, you know, working for a control freak boss who can't make a decision and, you know, who might be replaced someday with someone who's, you know, (laughs) who's <laughs> even harder, who wants all their own people. I mean, there's a, that's having all your eggs in one basket kind of True. risk. True. And there was there's another uh, bit of research that I cite in the book about people who, um, you know, solopreneurs and, you know, people who start their own businesses. And for them, having a diversified source of income and having control over their business and the people they work for was a huge risk mitigation factor. So again, it, it's it's one of those things. It's it right. depends on what angle you're looking at it from. Right, right. If if you would permit me to share, because you know this particular point resonated with me because um, even before uh, I had read your book and this particular point, I've had this discussion coming up with my students, and they typically talk about like you know entrepreneurs, risk taking, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, and you know their opinions are molded mostly by the shaped by the media profiles of so one of the questions i i I used to ask them and so mine is not research based but uh, sort of anecdotal but from personal experiences so my point was like hey look at any country majority of the businesses are small and medium enterprises many of them almost all of them are entrepreneurs Right. And, and then I said that, like, as a physical goods uh, trader in my life, not only in, in this part of the world, uh, in my career, uh, but even in the countries that I traded with uh, in Africa, in Latin America, and so on, all those people were, were, were all entrepreneurs, right? But, you know, immediately we think of uh, entrepreneur as only the Steve Jobs and, uh, you know, the other people who drop out of Harvard or Stanford, but like, these are all entrepreneurs, you know, who run SMEs and so on. So my counter question to my students used to be that, like, many of them actually run me to businesses. 
so if they were not if every one of them was really like the risk taking type then they wouldn't be even running many me too businesses so so i don't know do you think that that that's also another aspect of it which we just ignore because you know we don't sort of think much about those people as as um, you know the entrepreneurs and we have more fancy ideas about the the ones who get media coverage it's it's you know i think that um that that you know smaller entrepreneurs don't uh, don't get enough credit and i'd look at particular at the, the you know it, it, my first two books were were about immigration and i did right. quite a bit for a while on uh, immigrants and the economy and workforce integration and things and and so you'd see all these stories coming out about how immigrants were such big risk takers right. but when you look at this you know risky compared to what if it's someone who's come from a you know war torn country Mm -hmm. the the risk of even taking a very dangerous journey um right. are smaller and then they come to a new country and you look at you know the the sort of social capital and all of the things that reduce risk for someone who's grown up someplace you know they've right. got an uncle who can get them an internship with this company that leads to a job and that you know they they know certain people and for an immigrant in a new country in many cases you know they they do tend to go to the communities of people from their country right. and in many cases they they don't have the connections they don't have you know other things that they need to to get into a more traditional job and so that that mom and pop business is the thing that makes the most sense and actually in a certain way is the you know quote unquote least risky exactly path. moderate risk takers that's what we we think of those the business but as you say from their life perspective it could be you know, uh, on a different yeah. level. But then at the, the same time, you see Silicon Valley. I haven't seen the latest numbers, but I remember over the years, you know, the percent, the percentage of of successful businesses, in particular, you know, unicorns that were founded by immigrants is oh, yes. actually quite high. Quite, quite and, high. you know, that involves, you know, in many cases, people who had a lot of social capital in their home country and, you know, broader networks and much, you know, higher education. And, True. you know, they had some of the things that that allow them to take those those risks. But but I think once you've taken the risk of moving to a different country and all of the dealing with uncertainty that that involves um that that primes you in a certain yeah, exactly way exactly. it builds your risk muscle absolutely so you know talking of risk and um you know uh, in part one of our conversation you briefly touched upon it the world of finance is comfortable with risk but hates uncertainty so could you could you you know revisit that concept uh, you know for the for this discussion and then elaborate on it as to why yeah well you know the the thing about quantifying risk is it allows you to have a business model correct you know it allows you to uh, to make estimations of you know what kind of how much does it really cost me to ensure someone mm -hmm. you know how, how do i write a life insurance policy when you know you have these actuarial tables that will tell you that a mm -hmm. you know 64 year old woman who doesn't smoke is likely to live x number of years and you've got some 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 data and when you have data that allows you to make uh predictions with considerably more precision that makes it so much easier to have a business model mm. and um you know throughout throughout history uh, you know these these ships you know that yeah. would go you know from 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 africa from latin america to europe to to the united states and right. and back i mean huge amount of risk Absolutely. in that and it was actually maritime insurance that made this possible and you look at so many other business business activities where being able to quantify with it it's some reasonable 
degree of certainty mm. is really essential for for making that work. And so, you know, there are some people they you know the people who call themselves disruptors who thrive on uncertainty and you know finding little pockets of uncertainty in this crazy world. Um, but that's you know that's a special kind of person, a special kind of attitude. Most people in business. Um, or, you know, in life, most people in the world don't really like that. And we have to have systems that work for most people in the world. So the ability to price risk is very, very, very important. And, you know, in our personal decisions, maybe we're not assigning like a numerical price, but right. we've got a sort of a price in, in, in our, our heads, a, you know, more than or less than, you know, pass fail kind of, kind of price. So, so it is important um, and I, I can see why businesses like uh, like certainty. In fact, you know, you, there's there's a term I've I've heard thrown around, you know, an uncertainty tax. Yeah. Yep. Um, yep. That you know, we we certainly during the, the the previous four years in the United States, we had a lot of that, and it made it very very hard for businesses to make decisions, particularly long term decisions. True. 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 Uh, having dealt with many uh, emerging economies, uh, I perfectly understand the concept of uncertainty tax because you're dealing with such markets and so there's a lot of uncertainty in there. In your book, you also say that like, um, I believe that uh, Friedman's argument, you know, that there is one and only one social responsibility of business and uh, that is to use its resources and engage in activities designed to increase its profit. So you say that that argument has outlived its usefulness. So, you know, despite you being based in Chicago, what you see has changed in the free market economies. Well, first of all, um, you know, what Americans talk about as free market economy often is not actually free market. It's, true, it's true. set up the playing field so that the advantage goes to the United States. Um, so there are certain people who have taken care of certain other people. <laughs> so when I hear free market, I'm like, mm, that doesn't mean what you think it means. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. exactly. Free for me, not about, for you type. <laughs> yeah, but, 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 you know, but aside from that, the, you know, the whole, uh, you know, shareholder versus the, the newer stakeholder capitalism Correct. models. Correct. I think the thing that the Friedman missed was that they're not mutually exclusive. Right. Um, we've seen so many cases where, you know, companies have been bad actors right. and the reputational costs are huge. So if you're not paying attention to things that are going to affect your reputation, you're not actually looking out for your shareholders' True. interests. True. Or I think the biggest example of that is, is you know, fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's a company, it's, a, it's an industry based on huge government subsidies right. and huge externalities that everybody else is paying for. Mm. And that, you know, it's, it's a very, very narrow focus. And we're seeing that if that continues, like there's not going to be anything. Like, we're not going to have a planet. We're not going to have anything. True. And, you know, investors are seeing too that, hey, okay, yeah, I'm making a ton of money from my fossil fuel investments, but I'm taking a bath on my coastal real estate investments yes, yes. on my municipal bonds because so many cities you know the economic model is based on being on a on a body of water right. and we're seeing you know too much water too little water you're seeing all these you know wildfires and things like that and so uh you know the whole fossil fuel industry in terms of 
you know, if their if their shareholders live on planet Earth, right, they are not looking out for their shareholders. <laughs> so I think we need to stop thinking about it as a as a zero sum game. And embrace the stakeholder concept, right? Absolutely. And, you know, there's been a lot of, of, of criticism of, you know, some companies that, that give lip service to the stakeholder model, and some of them are walking the walk, not just talking the talk. And I think right. that's, that's a fair criticism. I think we, you know, we really need to weed that out, uh, you know, similarly with, you know, ESG and, and you know, greenwashing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's important to be able to distinguish which, which companies are really serious, uh, where, you know, their, their actions matter more than right. just their words but at the same time you you got to start with the words like right. until you have the words you don't get the action and true, true. and uh, so i think it's important not to not to throw the baby out with the bathwater true true so you know uh, i just mentioned like that uh, you know my background was uh, in international trade and uh, especially in consumer goods um, between Asia, Africa, Latin America and, and so Middle East and so on. So, you know, one of the quotes that I liked in your book was when the party that's best able to bear the risk does so, both parties are better off. Actually, you know, most of our suppliers in my in my previous life, so to say, our suppliers, our customers, we're not comfortable with the risk in dealing directly with each other. So we as an intermediary, or as a trading company, we added value by providing sourcing, marketing, logistic, you know, all these value additions. And even more importantly, we also bore the financial risk in doing business in these uncertain markets. So my question is, why? Why governments and even societies are, you know, often do not acknowledge even the risk, risk-taking and the risk-bearing value addition that middlemen provide? Yeah, you know, it's such an important, um, it's such an important conversation. And of course, you know, the, the comment came partly from from Marina Krakowski's work on, on the middleman economy, right. uh, and that role of, of sort of, you know, brokering uh, risk. And I think that, you know, I often say that, that the risk decisions that a society makes, tell the world who it is, you know, mm-hmm. just as much as, you know, individual decisions, you know, are, are the imprint of our, our risk fingerprint. Mm-hmm. And I think the way societies decide who bears the risk, right. both tells the world who they are, and it also determines how successful they're going to be or not. Right. Uh, you know, in the, in the conclusion of the book, I speak with the artist Drew Kataoka, who, right. who talks about, you know, Michelangelo and these, like, these big, you know, immortal works. And how was it that those came about? I mean, yes, it was these, you know, amazing, charismatic people with, with dreams, but it was it was the patrons, it was the financial backers, exactly. it was the people who provided the environment that allowed them to really make those stretches. Right. Um, and, you know, an, an author whose work I love is uh, Mariana Mazzucato, uh, mm. you know, her most recent book, um, the, you know, uh, Mission Economy, you know, right. talking about the times when government assumes risk right. and uh you know the kind of things like you know solving climate change areas or you know creating the internet you know areas yeah. where yeah, it took it, a big yeah. risk that no single company would do exactly. and then how the how the profits of those risk take risks that the government takes how those are are distributed and in many cases they're then again you know privatized by particular companies who were exactly. there in the right place right. um or you know you look at even just the whole uh, you know the whole pandemic situation you right. know public health decisions made by governments and you know some companies 
have had the red carpet laid out for them. Um, mm-hmm. Other companies, not so much. You know, some people have ended up very well from all of the, 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 the money printing. Mm-hmm. Other people are still struggling and losing their homes. And it's, you know, who, who gets protected? Do the most vulnerable bear the most risk? Do the people who are the most protected right. uh, get subsidized the most? And those True. are really big questions that are hugely important. And they're not just for you know moral reasons or whatever people might come up with for yes you've got to protect the, the vulnerable from risk but it's also about creating the kind of conditions that that allow the michelangelos of the world to, to, to thrive that okay. allow the big breakthrough developments the kind of ecosystems that support the growth of businesses and jobs and innovation and creativity and really successful countries so it's it's one of the most important questions that a country can ask itself right that's a you know wonderful point uh, for us to you know bring this discussion to an end and you know given our backgrounds i think we can go on discussing uh, on and on and uh, i thoroughly enjoyed uh, talking to you it was our pleasure to you know to explore all these things at length about both your books the gray rhino and uh, you are what you risk the more uh, recent ones thanks for taking time from your day schedule for this we learned a lot about you know dealing with known high impact high probable risks that many of us ignore and related to that you know is that our risk profile as individuals as organizations and even nations so and this is influenced both by our nature nurture you know which is social religious political economic all the things right you know legal historical geographical context that you spoke about so i'm sure that our audiences will also benefit a lot from your book and your research so if any of them want to know more about your work or reach out to you what's your um, company's website link and uh, you know contact details and so on sure so you you can reach me at the gray rhino.com mm-hmm. gray with an a or an e will get you there right. <laughs> with an a will get you there faster the american mm-hmm. spelling um i'm on twitter at wooker w-u-c-k-e-r and you can also find me on linkedin where i have a a, a semi-regular newsletter that I send out um, trying to make it more regular but you know Wonderful. life uh, but thank you so much for your very very thoughtful and thorough questions and and a really really uh, a lovely engaging conversation so really thank appreciate you. that thank you so much and that's it's because of your book you know stimulated so much thought in me thank you thank you so much thank you for joining us in yet another episode of move conversations hope you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to the Move Conversations YouTube channel and press the bell icon to get notifications of new episodes. Thank you very much. Till I see you in the next episode. Thank you very much. Have a great day.